Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, a place where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we are excited to welcome Coach Ryan Pannone, head coach of the Erie Bayhawks of the G League. Coach Pannone is here to talk some X's and O's from the international game, break down the intricacies of the pick and roll, talk about his first year in the G League as a head coach, the power of adding value, and so much more. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on YouTube and Twitter. And please enjoy our conversation with Coach Pannone. Okay, we're joined now by Coach Ryan Pannone, head coach of Erie Bayhawks in the NBA's G League. Coach, welcome to the Slapping Glass podcast. We're really excited to have you this afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I, I appreciate it. Last year, you took over as the, the head coach for Erie Bayhawks. And um, like mentioned before, you spent a lot of time over in different parts of Europe. I know you were actually you're in China as well, and you've been a, a big um, promoter of the international game. What were some things in your first year as a head coach in the G League that you were able to take from your international experience that fit well or worked into what you did? You know, I, I'd say a lot of it was attempted to take. I don't, I don't know how successful we were going thirteen and thirty, and uh, you know, some of the the bigger things that we attempted to take were spacing principles, really value in the European style spacing european style ball movement um we had some games where we felt like we accomplished that and then other games where it was uh the typical a little bit more g-league style of play so the main goals were were to take that and then also mix in some of the the european style movement offenses where uh there's a lot of movement involved and before you get to the main action, uh, you know, you could call it false action, uh, whatever your terminology is. And so those were some of the main concepts uh, that, that we tried to put in this year. And, and as I said, at some, some parts it was successful and, and I thought we did a really good job and other parts we didn't. And then different cutting, uh, you know, like it became a rule for us, uh, which oftentimes you see over there on baseline drives, 45 cut you know, middle drive baseline cut. And so trying to instill some of the cutting, the filling, the movement, the relocation, the spacing, the player movement off the ball. And uh, we had mixed success with it, uh, but something definitely to continue to focus on improving for next year with the goal of adding some new things. Coach, how much did the different three-point line uh, affect the spacing that you would see in Europe when you come and in the G League was obviously it's further out and the value on the corner three-pointer? You know, it wasn't more so an impact than that. What was interesting was that there's a different spot of spacing that they utilize in the NBA. It's a little bit more than what they do in Europe. I, I call it um, the runway, but it would kind of be where if you have the point of the – 
elbow and you just kind of went out if you drew a kind of like a straight line and, and it kind of ends up going between the slot and the 45. And so it's, it's kind of the concept location where a lot of teams try to use the stampede action, attack the catch action, whatever your terminology is in the NBA, that that's where players are a little bit more traditionally off the 45 in Europe. So I, I like that spacing concept with the three point line, uh, th- that's something that I would, you know, take back with me if I go back to Europe at any point. But that it, the three-point line didn't really impact the spacing. I would say, if anything, it enhanced the spacing naturally because you're, you have more gravitational pull uh, if you have quality shooters to the defenders. Okay. So um, with the, the spacing and the cutting aspect, um, some of the things that – you know, we've gotten into looking a lot at is the the off ball movement on a pick and roll, especially like a middle pick and roll. Um, and we've seen so much of that, like baseline cut um, on a on an on ball or the forty five or a flare or all that different action. Is there any particular action that you guys tried to utilize um, during pick and roll to that you found success with? This year, I mean, you know, I think one of the more underutilized things. Uh, general concept pick and roll or penetration uh in america is the fill behind and so i mean you know typically in europe right like whether you're you're penetrating or you're playing a middle pick and roll going away from the two side towards the one side you know and with the typical rule of on the second dribble if the ball is going away from you second dribble you move and you sprint and you fill behind and if the ball is obviously going towards you on the first trouble you move. And so I, I'd say that was a big thing, right? Because obviously defenders are going to stand and watch so often in, in the, the NBA and the G League as opposed to Europe, in which it's slowly trickling over to Europe. The majority of teams are going to play drop pick and roll coverage with the goal of trying to solve the pick and roll two on two and stay home on shooters, right? And, and the theory of that is that the three off ball defenders are going to uh, stay engaged and not turn their head for 24 seconds, which as we all know, doesn't really happen. It's, it's incredibly difficult to get guys to defend on the ball and stay focused for 24 seconds, let alone off the ball. So that was one of the main concepts that we tried to utilize was getting those guys to understand not just moving, but when to move and how to move. And, you know, trying to time it up more or less on the second dribble coming off a middle pick and roll to where now the guy that would be at the 45 would lift to the top of the key and the guy in the corner would lift to the 45. And also with the mentality of racing to space, not just sliding and jogging to space and trying to make sure, you know, the concept of allowing the ball to see you, right? Like players always feel like I see the ball, right? But that's not the value. The value is the ball has to see you in order for the passer to be able to make the play. Okay. Yeah. Go Coach, ahead. Yeah. I mean, you do, like you were mentioning, lifting off of the corner, especially obviously in the G League and the NBA, they talk about the value of the corner three. I mean, was that something you were fine with? I mean, I mean, I think would they, if your 45 is lifting to the top, you would still want your corner guy lifting to above the break where the three point line is further, uh, yes, like I the mean, shot is further. Part of it becomes, uh, right. That the location on the ball, right. Because it's not just about the, it's trying to generate uncontested threes, 
you know, right? At, yeah. at the end of the day, the difference between an early high hand contested three and an uncontested three is going to be roughly 25 to 30 percent, depending on the quality of your shooter and the different countries or leagues that I've coached in. So trying to generate, number one, uncontested threes, two, closeout situations. And so half-court offense these days is played through the closeout. If you're playing against a high-level defensive team, right, they're ready to defend multiple closeouts. So you now have to try to put them in the, the typical terminology of the blender. So let's say you're playing the middle pick and roll, going away from the two side. And this is what we tried to, to implement and, and get the understanding to our players. If you're playing the middle pick and roll, going away from the two side towards one side with four out spacing. On the second dribble, both those players should be on a string to the ball, right? They should both be lifting. Now, at that point, that means that the ball is roughly broken the free throw line. So now, if the ball is at the free throw line, the player that was at the 45 is now at the top of the key. The player that was at the corner is now at the 45. The roller is roughly at the rim, right? Now, you don't have any player on the same passing line. Now, as the ball handler is getting deeper towards the rim, so the deeper penetration that he would get, we would then try to have that player sprint back down to the corner because now the big would kind of be circling up, teeing up to the front of the rim as the penetration went a little bit further and then also trying to uh, always have that corner outlet for a baseline drift pass if they got deep penetration. Okay. So what we wanted for them was to sprint up to the 45 and then sprint back down as penetration got deeper. Uh, the other thing, you know, as, as we're talking about concepts that are cons currently happening in Europe that isn't so common in America, something that I would try to implement next year, right, is you're, you're seeing Andrea Trinketti's teams and Zeljiko Bradovic's teams and some of these other uh, Shronis Yasekevich's, like they've done a really good job of as teams are starting to take away that baseline drift, they have that guy lifting to the 45 and then having the penetrator at times gnash it out and make that 45 pass with his defender worried about taking away the baseline drift, which is something I think is is very interesting as defenses are continuing to evolve, right? Then you have to figure out how to counter it offensively. So that's something I would actually work on implementing next year, uh, being able to to have that penetration and then whip that thing out to the 45, if that makes sense, okay. without drawing it up or showing on video. Yeah. Yeah. Um, getting like a little more detail with the, the teaching of the pick and roll, you mentioned the two backside guys and moving on the second dribble. Um, what do you teach um, between the on-ball screener and the ball handler in a middle pick and roll about foot angles, attacking angles? Um, is there a progression that you guys teach where, you know, an automatic under you're going to rescreen or uh, increase an angle to attack downhill? What sort of the the teaching points with those two guys actually in the on ball. So number one, you know, with the ball handler, uh, very first thing you have to do is create a setup. You have to create the pick and roll setup, not just necessarily use the pick and roll unless there's separation right against good defense as, as we're preparing to beat. utilizing pick and roll setups to where you're going to attack that defender, engage that defender Right. And your first read is to reject the pick and roll. So if we can reject the pick and roll every time, that's going to be the very first option that we're going to do. The reason behind that 
is two things. One, the defense, if you think about how much time that you spend on building your pick and roll defense, I would say 95% and to even a lot of coaches, 100% of the time, the way that you're working on your pick and roll defense in practice is based on the player using the pick and roll, which means that you haven't built your defense for failure. Uh, two, even if you have worked on what your rotations are, what you're doing, if a player rejects the pick and roll, your rotations aren't going to be as crisp as if they use the pick and roll because 95% of the time that's the way that you're drilling your pick and roll defense. And when the defense isn't prepared for failure, right, anytime a, a player is caught off guard, the reaction, right, is number one, it's going to be a blow by potentially getting into the paint, which is going to generate your layups two fouls right and then three obviously when guys don't know the rotations kick out catch and shoot threes uh two would be getting to the point of the screen without your man right you have to come to the screen without your man creating separation not allowing that player to dictate it three head over your shoulder Right. So like most guys, if they're coming off a middle pick and roll, their eyesight is to the sideline of the floor. Right. You want your head over your shoulder. That way you can read off ball cuts. That way you can read if there's a slip. Okay. And there's nothing to to the side of the floor. Right. You want to consistently be a threat to really attack the advantage. Sometimes in the pick and roll, right, the advantage is created coming off the pick and roll. But sometimes in the pick and roll, the advantage is created before the pick and roll even happens because the defense, whether your defense is built, uh, as most defenses are, to help from the loaded side, so wherever the two side is in four-out spacing, as your defense is built to help from the loaded side, guys are going to get into position almost early, right? So if you can recognize that early situation and you're teaching your team to cut right or get that early pass easy pass and a closeout is already created which means the advantage is already created now getting to the point of the screen you have to know their coverage their personnel and your personnel so if you're getting to the point of the screen and you know that they're a hard showing team but the big thing that's hard showing isn't overly athletic and you can utilize speed and quickness to attack his hip and turn the corner, right? That's going to dictate your reads and what you're doing. If you know that they're hard showing and you see that the big, which is one of the rules, he's got to come without his man, which now means that he's a second delayed, right? Now maybe the pocket pass, the early hook pass to the early roll, short roll is open. You know, so those are big keys. Then, you know, your eyes sell lies. When you're coming off that pick and roll, if you really watch high-level international guards uh, or guards that are playing internationally, whether it's Compazzo, Calathis, you can go to Spinola List and Matter, right? They're coming off and they're looking at the roller and they're kicking out to where you're helping from on the strong side, or they're looking at the shake-up guy, the kick-out guy, and they're hitting the roller. And so that's a very big part of it, right? Being deception, having the craft is recognizing that your eyes sell lies. And a big part of that, once again, is understanding your opponent's coverage and rotations, the way that they're going to rotate out of it, the way that they're going to play out of it. Then, right, dictating your pace. Once again, your pace coming off the screen a lot of guys play at the same pace off every pick and roll. 
And some of that is is coverage-based, some of it is personnel-based, some of it is your personnel-based, right? And so recognizing if they're in a deep drop, you're a bigger physical guard, you're coming off the screen, right? You, you may attack downhill with pace to create the two-on-one advantage with a dynamic roller, right? But you also may come off and hostage dribble the player, right, and utilize the Gortat screen. You know, so those are, are some of the bigger reads and thought processes that has to go into the pick and roll uh, before you're playing it, yeah. right? And, and typically, you know, I don't think guards are consistently thinking about the opponent's coverage, personnel, and rotations. And that comes down to the scattering report, really evaluating their pick and roll defense and what your advantages are out of it. You know, and I, I think it's something that we – preparation wise right like we we see it a little bit more in individual sports whether it's tennis or boxing the mentality on this is what they do this is how i counter it this is how i prepare for it you know i think that's something that we could probably do better basketball wise because it's something we're thinking about as coaches right but we're not playing the game we got to get our guards to understand and recognize their coverage their rotations where the weak spots are and their defense and how to attack it. So much good stuff there, Coach. Thank you. One of the things that I always struggle with um, at our level, which is Division three level, is um, a great way to teach our bigs how to screen a middle on ball, when to flip the angle, when to stay flat, when to close it off, You know what they should be reading as far as where the defender is. And so... Do you have anything with your bigs as they sprint into the middle on ball screen? What are they reading? Are they looking at the ball handler or are they looking at the foot angle of the defender? And then are, are they always, you know, obviously depends on if they can pop or short roll or long roll, but what are their reads in, um, in what you teach? So number one, come without your man. It's your job to dictate their coverage, right? If, if a team is trying to hard show on a pick and roll, but you come without your defender, if he's delayed, you've created separation, number one, he can't hard show, and two, if he does hard show, it's going to be a delayed hard show, which allows him to get split or allows the guard you know, the ability to come off and turn that corner a little bit more. So number one, you know, think of the way that we work with shooters. When we work with shooter coming off an off-ball screen action, the way that we want them to get into the body of their defender, create separation, race off the screen or stop start to create that separation change of pace and so that's a big thing that i think is undertaught and underworked on with bigs is them dictating the coverage right you getting into the defender sprinting off the way that steph curry does when Kawhi leonard's guard him. like how does he create that separation it's the same thing we need our bigs to do two if they're still attached right maybe you're you're faking the back cut or your stop start and creating that separation again. So number one, they've got to come without their man. Two, they have to recognize okay, their personnel, the angle of the screen that you're setting for Rajon Rondo and Steph Curry can be very different, you know, because you're not too worried about guys going under the screen on Steph Curry. If anything, you almost possibly encourage it. Uh, two with Rondo, right? Like you know that they're going to go under. So the angle of screen that, that you set can oftentimes be better for your personnel. You know, I think if you're taking 
you know, uh, take a look at a guy like Nick Calaitis, right? Guys are going to go under him. He's not incredibly fast east-west, but downhill, he's very good. His speed to get downhill is very underrated, and then his paint decisions are elite, right? So like, for a guy like Nicolaitis, your angle may be almost more to a step-up, right, to where they're not really going to be able to go into that. He's going to be able to get downhill and attack that coverage and try to eliminate that. So I, I think knowing your personnel is a big part of it, then knowing their coverage. So are they trying to show in the pick-and-roll, deep drop in the pick-and-roll, switch the pick-and-roll? The angle of the screen and how long you hold the screen is different in those situations. If you know that they're switching in a pick and roll, and if you think about it, like if I were to ask you, if you're switching in a pick and roll, what are your switching rules? What are you teaching your players uh, for your pick and roll defense? So like what would our bigs be doing? Just in in general, what is your, your switch rules and pick and rolls? Like how do you – teach them to switch if there's a slip or no slip or screen yeah i guess yeah i mean the slip is the biggest problem obviously with uh, a pick and roll when we're switching as to who goes with the slip um depending on you know when they they do slip it so um right so it, so, so like that the common term is no screen no scheme you know no mm-hmm. no contact no switch so now if you know that they're switching you know, let's say you're a ball handler that has got the ball in your left hand. You're going to the middle of the floor to come off the pick and roll with your left hand. I'm sprinting from the right dunker up into the pick and roll. If I know that you're switching, I want to screen you with my top shoulder. I don't want to screen your the middle third of your body. I want to screen you with my top shoulder because that means if I'm screening you with my right shoulder on your defender's right shoulder, that means that I have a half-step advantage getting underneath him, so he's always high side on the screen, right? So if I screen him with my right shoulder and I just have quick contact into a quick left foot reverse pivot, that defender is always on my back versus switch, which basically I'd number one creates like the wraparound hook pass, Two creates high-low situations where that defender is never able to get underneath you and stand up your roll. And so the amount of contact doesn't have to be heavy hold-it contact, which allows them to try to rotate under and, and stand up the roll, because even if there's minimal contact, you've already created that mentality of, well, there it's not there's no screen, no scheme. There's a screen. It's just not a heavy knock your – head off screen Mm -hmm. if it's against a drop right and your pick and roll ball handler is a bigger guard that can get downhill some right you're probably to allow that guard to get that downhill advantage right and then the way that you want to open up is to keep that defender on your back that way it's a two-on-one advantage in the drop against the drop in the pick and roll if they're hard showing or if they're in an aggressive coverage, also with uh, switches, right, you want to utilize a lot of slips. But if they're hard showing, you want to utilize a lot of slips or set minimal contact and get out quick to open up the short roll or hard roll to put pressure on the rim to open up your other three passing lines. You know, So those are, are some things that are very important. And then whether you're a popping big, short rolling big, 
or hard rolling big, you have to set the screen and race to get out. You know, it doesn't matter whether you are screening and popping, screening and short rolling into the pocket or hard rolling, right? You have to race to get out. It's not a jog. Your mentality has got to be to create as much separation as quickly as possible to create either a longer closeout uh, if you're a pick and pop big or to get into the pocket early enough or to create separation uh, on your hard roll. So I think that's underutilized. And then depending on, once again, if it's a hard roller or not, now it becomes race to roll and roll to seal. You know, so we want to teach our guys if whether it's a sh- uh, you've, you're going towards the two side or away from the two side, you want to come off that pick and roll. Your big, if he's a rim roller, is racing. It is a foot race to the rim to roll. And then if he doesn't get it on that pass out, whether it's a pass to the shakeup guy that's at the 45 or it's a fill behind pass, now you're rolling to seal and you're punching in deep and aggressive. So if you're picking and popping, um, do you like to emphasize then have some off ball cuts to have someone at least collapse the paint? You know, if your point guard can't get downhill, so at least, you know, your defense can't zone up quite as easy or is just the threat of the pop enough to put, create what, the advantage. What's put the pressure floor on. balance? Let's say, uh, yeah, let's go since top pick and roll and he's attacking to the two man side. So, you know, he's pop, he's popping to the single side, your point guards attacking to the two man side. So I'd say if you're attacking to the two man side from a middle pick and roll, it would be one of the two players that are on the two side that's going to be cutting, right? So you can either 45 cut that player. That way you're still opening up the penetration for the guard to get downhill against the big guy so his defender doesn't sit on the elbow clogging up the paint. Mm-hmm. Or you're cutting the corner and dropping the 45 guy to the corner, which I prefer because now two defenders are in movement as opposed to one, but some of it kind of comes to your personnel. You know, so – for me, it's more so that I would have one of those two guys cutting at the point of the pick and roll to open up the penetration, uh, the penetration possibility for the guard, right? Because the more that he penetrates, it's a longer closeout in that pick and pop situation, depending on your coverage. Uh, two, he's racing to get away on the coverage. Now, in the throwback to the pop, right? Then it obviously you can get to a catch, swing, second side, pick and roll, or catch into the European typical motion offense. If you've had one of the two players on the strong side cut, now that becomes a loaded side. One of those guys would then cut DHO or pick and pop. If you're playing a middle pick and roll going uh, toward the one side, then we would early slot cut or early burn cut, you know, the guy at the 45, you know, so right at the point of the pop, you know, you'd cut the stunt. His defender was typically going to to stunt on the pick and pop, so that would now become an early cut to take away his stunt defender to open up the pop. Yeah, you wouldn't wouldn't wait for the two dribbles uh, away on that pick. He would be yeah, forty five cutting if right we away. Know that we're popping. Yeah, just to clear out his stunt man right away. You know, if we know that we're trying to hit the pop, mm-hmm. you know, it, it would be point of the pick and roll. 
And on that pass going to the pick and pop guys, when you see that pass, when he's starting to make that pass to the pop, now it's an early cut before he catches it to try to eliminate that stunt defender on it. You know, ideally we're, we're trying to almost create it a single side, you know, with that uh, player in the corner. Um, my next kind of follow-up question is back to the very first point you made on pick and rolls is practicing failure. What do you as a coach then, I mean, are you setting up sort of handicap drill with your defense in practice, or is it just constantly emphasizing to reject the screen that you get these situations naturally in your you know, five on five practices combination. We're, we're starting out teaching them what the road. So we may say, okay, we're going to play in the pick and roll. All right. Uh, the guy on the ball is going to be at a disadvantage, right? So we know he's going to reject it. He's got to be in a disadvantage on the reject and then practicing our rotations. And then the goal is that we've worked on it so much in our skill development with our mentality and in film, showing reject opportunities that then that gives us live organic situations to correct it. What's kind of your philosophy with transition defense and how much, if any, or all of it is based upon how you want to play defense in the half court. So I'm a big fan of what's called tagging up, uh, which is uh, a transition defensive concept that was created by Aaron Fern the head coach of uh, – he's now an assistant coach at UNC Charlotte for the men's team, but he was a head coach of the Cairns Taipans in the Australian League for nine years. So basically they were the lowest budget team in the league and never finished last. He went to uh, two finals, three final fours, finished middle of the pack a bunch. And so he created a defensive transition system called tagging up, which is essentially five players – not aggressively attacking the glass, but driving their defender into the paint. And a byproduct of that became offensive rebounding. And so what he found out is his defensive transition improved as his offensive rebounding percentage improved. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of that. It's something we did in Hapold, Jerusalem. It's something as a head coach in Europe I wanted to do. And what you find out when you become a head coach, like you've got a hundred things that you want to do and you just can't do everything your first year. Uh, we experimented at some in the G league this year. I'd like to do more of it, but, but I think it comes down to, you know, what your personnel is and, and what your beliefs are. I really believe in that, uh, you know, offensive rebounding is the uh, second highest percentage play uh, behind uh, transition fast breaks. Right. And like, People always worry about in your transition defense and sending three, four, five guys back that you're worried about giving up layups, right? The guys are going to leak out. But if we're getting 20 offensive rebounds in a game, you're teaching your players to box out, don't leak out. You know, So I think it kind of goes hand in hand. I think if you're a press and trap team, I would 100% tag up. But I think it comes to like what your – what the buy-in you can create with your players, what your philosophy is. Uh, but I'm a massive believer in tagging up uh, from Aaron Fern. Aaron Fern is one of the best coaches I've been around. Yeah, and um, to, to Pat's point, I know you spoke a little bit about tagging up on a, a recent podcast um, interview. The um, You said you had a slightly different philosophy than Aaron, though, where he has more of the lanes they're running into over the top and trying to wedge their man in, where you would normally have maybe three or four of those guys do it, but then 
your sort of ass kicking offensive rebounders, you would just teach them to just go get it. Yeah. Is that slightly a, different? Yeah. I tried to, to, to name guys, go get it guys. Like if you've got a talent for being an offensive rebounder, I didn't want to limit him. Like I, I'm a big believer in that of adjusting my philosophy to a talent. You know, like I hate going for on ball steals, right? But if you got a guy that just has great hands, I'm going to live with it. And so when you got a guy that's a, a good offensive rebounder, you know, I think limiting that talent isn't good. And then it becomes, even if you watch really good offensive rebounders, you know, guys that have really good offensive rebounding numbers, still like 70, 75% of the time, they only go after the ball aggressively. There's another 25% that they just kind of stand there and don't do anything. So I think if you can turn that to more of like a 90, 95%, right, then you're not worried about his guy leaking up. Like if I'm getting three offensive rebounds a game, you're not leaking out because if you give up an offensive rebound to me, your coach is going to take you out of the game. So I, I like that was kind of like the mentality behind. I was gonna bet that he was gonna pull so much of the defense to him for being an elite offensive rebounder that it wasn't gonna hurt us, and, and I, it was effective for us in Jerusalem. Coach, moving a little bit to G League coaching and sort of the intricacies of of what that entails. Um, how easy or difficult has it been to implement? some of these more complex strategies of, of timing cuts and the second dribble and all of these things with a team that has guys constantly, you know, coming onto the roster, leaving two way contracts and things like that. Has have you found that to be um, easier yeah, or more it, difficult? No, it, it's definitely difficult for a few reasons. Uh, you know, for us in particular, we, we had a bunch of rookies, uh, you know, on some G league teams, they've got guys that, no one aren't rookies, but have gone to Europe and have come back. So their their general concept of understanding of that is a little bit higher. Two, you know, even on a lot of G League teams, there's some form of roster continuity. You know, it's it's not like in Europe where it's eight guys, right? It it could be three guys, could be four guys, could be two guys, but there's at least two guys that understand, right? And then it's getting guys with that mentality. You know, I think Martin Schiller, who is the head coach of the Salt Lake City Stars, he's an Austrian coach uh, that spent a lot of time coaching in Germany. He's now the head coach of Zalgiris. Uh, I thought he did an excellent job. You know, like that. his first year in the league, they were one of the worst teams in the league. Second year, you know, they were in the middle. He did a great job this year. They were the best team in the league, and he was able to build it. And watching his team play – I watched a lot of Salt Lake City Stars play last summer, and it gave me hope that it could be done. They played a very European-style spacing, movement, cutting. He did a, a hell of a job. It's why he was the, the G League Coach of the Year. And other G League coaches also do a great job. I, I, just, I focused a lot more on his team, given his background uh, You know, when I, when I took the job. But it's something that, that makes it hard, right, is – is your roster in terms of, you know, are you, do you have a bunch of rookies? Do you have guys that have never played in Europe? Then the amount of practice you have, you know, like we had six practices before our first game, you know, and so then it is 
being able to implement it and practice consistently and get the players to grasp it. And so it's, it's definitely one of those things like after going through it for a first year on elite, on a team with a bunch of rookies, we had 11 players miss 82 games due to injuries. We had not just roster turnover guys coming in and out. I would uh, teach it possibly different and in different ways, if that makes sense. I would incorporate it more consistently in the in all of the shooting drills that we did. And, mm-hmm. and I did it some. I just probably didn't do it enough. It would have our daily routine of, look, this is, just, this is how we're going to warm up, which we did it off and on for we're going to warm up with layups out of our – you know, uh, baseline drive, 45 cut, middle drive, baseline cut. You know, I would just probably do it a little bit more every day uh, than, than what I did in terms of this day. We only have seven players in practice due to injury, so we know we got to get out quick. we got to do this. So, you know, hopefully next year I can teach it better and, and have a better understanding also of it with our roster. How about coaching – the different levels of guys within a G League team. So you've got some guys that are two-way players going up and going down. You got some guys that you know are just coming into the league and maybe they're pretty far off from making an actual roster in the NBA, but they're hoping to have a good season to maybe get picked up in Europe. What's that like from a player development standpoint, and also trying to keep them bought into a team philosophy at the same time? I mean, the, the team philosophy is is the consistent uphill battle. And uh, on the player development side, what we tried to do is do as much one-on-one with a coach to maximum two-on-one with a coach as possible to make sure that we were developing the individual needs of each specific player. You know, I think oftentimes we – group three point guards in together to do player development and they all three have different weaknesses, right? If, if all three of us are sick and I've got the flu and you've got COVID and he's got the common cold and we go to the doctor, right? Like the, the treatment isn't the same for all three of us, even though all three of us are, are sick. And I think oftentimes as coaches, we try to prescribe the same medicine based on position. And it's not the case. So, you know, we try to individualize it as much as possible. Part of the G League is you're going to have guys not playing like five, six straight games, and then they're, they're starting and playing 35 minutes. And so it's not just physically keeping those guys ready. It's mentally keeping them ready because, like, for us, it, it was a matter of time that you were going to get your shot. And when you got your shot, you got to be ready to perform. You know, what I told our staff at, at the beginning of the season was, you know, if we tell someone that this is what they have to do to play more and they're doing it, then it is your job to make sure that we play. It. If they're doing it and I'm not playing, you're killing the buy-in of not just those players but your whole team, right? Because they speak to each other. Because hey, coach told me if I work on this and do this better and do this, that that I'm going to get a shot to play. And then if he's doing that, and I'm still not giving him the opportunity to play, I'm not giving him that shot. He's going to go around and be like, man, that's a bunch of BS. You know, coach is a liar. He's full of it. You know, so that was part of our mentality. And 
you know, we had two guys that kind of started the season not really playing to playing to becoming sixth, seventh guys, to becoming starters, to becoming go-to guys for us. And so, you know, that's the mentality that we tried to have is to be fair and firm with our players, but also be able to point to guys that are doing it. like, hey, look, man, this is what we told this guy. He's doing it. He's getting a shot. He's performed. You know, even though you haven't played in five games, it doesn't mean that you're relegated to the bench for for the rest of the season. You've got to be ready because somebody, based on our team, for sure will get injured or be sick or something. You're going to have your shot, and you better be ready. And then two to try to help with that mentality is, you know, typically in the G League, right, like you you have your guys that play under 20 minutes. They're doing skill development the next day or the day off is I always went to that. Like it wasn't – I wanted them to see that, look, I'm here with you. I'm in the gym with you. You're not by yourself. There is no off day for me. There's no off day for you. And it's not like you're putting in the work just with the assistant coach and I'm not seeing it. And you feel like, well, the head coach didn't, you know, he doesn't see how hard I'm working. No, I'm here. I'm here to watch. Not only am I here to watch, I'm here to screen. I'm here to pass. I'm here to rebound while our assistant coach runs your workout. So you can see servant leadership, right? That nothing can be beneath any of us. And then, you know, having that mentality of, of dealing with that roster situation, of guys going up and down, you know, it, it's hard, right? It's it's definitely hard because everyone wants to play. The G League is the junior college of professional basketball. Nobody wants to be there. Everyone wants to get out. And everyone thinks that it's their individual scoring is the way out. And if you think of it like this, right, like the value of winning, which we know as coaches, helps everyone. Over 80%, not including this year, I can't say the numbers, including this year, over 80% of the last five years in the G League of players that got a call-up from a different NBA team, so not the NBA team you're affiliated with, came off teams with winning records, right? And if you think about it like this, if you're not good enough to help your G League team win, how can you help an NBA team win? And typically, not all the time, but most of the time, the NBA teams that are signing players from the G League, when it's not your own G League team, or the bottom 15 teams in the league, right? Like they're trying to figure out a solution on how to win more games. They're trying to figure out something, whether it's your role to just come in and push the starter to get the starter more engaged, or they're legitimately looking for somebody that can help them win games, right? But very rarely... Are you seeing, uh, you know, the Boston Celtics or the Toronto Raptors take someone out of the G League that's not in their G League uh, team? You know, so winning is important too, right? It's the same thing in Europe. Like what what we all know, right, is is the pressure to win is through the roof. And so the the European teams, as we know, they don't overly respect the G League. Uh, you know, there's like the Euro League isn't overly impressed. The Euro Cup isn't overly impressed with the G League. I mean, obviously, there's tremendous individual talent. Uh, but the perception of the G League, right, is that guys don't play hard. Guys don't run any plays. They don't play team basketball. They don't care about winning. You know, and when their job is on the line, 
are they going to go with a really talented individual off a team that didn't win? Or are they going to go with a really talented individual off the team that did win? You know, and at the end of the day, if you can't help a G League team win, you definitely cannot help a Euro League team win or a Euro Cup team that's trying to compete for one. I mean, in terms of building team chemistry in the G League, I mean, like you said, you mentioned that, you know, stressing the individual work will lead to time and the value of winning and you always being there. But anything outside of the court or not tactically that just you as a coach felt like also helped develop your team chemistry and the buy-in from the guys? Yeah, you know, I'll say we our record wasn't very good. We had really good guys, like really good individual people, uh, people that were just, you know, we, we didn't have anyone on our team that you're like, God, that guy's just a jerk. You, you know, we had really good guys that got along really well. And uh, sometimes it showed on the floor. You know, I think if you watch us play, if you just pick a random game, uh you know, you wouldn't be like, oh, man, yeah, they're terrible. They're the worst team. Like, they played relatively hard, you know, or just consistently injured and uh, under-talented as a whole probably for the G League. But I think a big part of it is, number one, uh, you know, I try to show our coaching mistakes in our film sessions. You know, because the, the mentality for the player, right, is like we're always telling them what they did wrong, what they have to do better. No one's ever telling us, you know, so I don't shy away from what I feel is a mistake or what our staff feels is a mistake. So we search for clips and situations that are like, yeah, you know what? We, we mess this up. This was a, a bad ATO. This was uh, I didn't do a good enough job attacking their coverage out of an ATO or attacking this player. Or this guy was in foul trouble. We should have run this, or I subbed this guy out in it. I should have left him in, you know, whatever we can find, we try to show, right, to show honest vulnerability. And you know, I think that's so important in leadership is letting everyone else know, look, man, I, I tell, I openly tell the players, I'm not going to be the best coach you ever played for. I'm not going to be the smartest coach you ever played for. My effort is going to be through the roof. You're never going to question my work ethic. You're never going to question my effort. You're never going to question my preparation or intentions on what I do. I'm not always going to be right. I'm not always going to make the right decision. But I'm going to do everything that's within my power to attempt to make the right decision. But when I'm wrong, I have no problem admitting I was wrong. And I'll be the first person to admit that I was wrong. And I try to do that directly after the game when I feel that. I try to do it by film just to generate the, the vulnerable honesty to get players to be able to first look inward and say, okay, what can I do better? How can I change? Then I think as many conversations as possible, trying to take guys out to lunch individually, trying to spend time with them in the airports, the bus rides, trying to build that relationship of consistently being available. You know, I would take guys to the grocery store, take guys to get their hair cut, take guys, you know, they didn't have cars. So try to show them that, you know, I'm here for you more than just basketball. And, you know, then I think it comes down to the, the roster building. You know, like it's, it's kind of like where you talked about trying to get guys to buy into a team system, right? Well, if you build a roster of guys that play team basketball, you're going to have a, a better team system. You're also going to build better chemistry. I think it's super important and super underrated when you're putting together a roster, two things. One, care factor, 
you know, does this guy care? Does he care about practicing because he knows practice wins? Does he care about the scatter report? Does he care about taking care of his body? Does he care about winning? Two is having guys that people love playing with. They're like, as we're building out our roster next year, you know, we're talking about it consistently. We've got to have guys that people love playing with, right? Because then it just changes the energy in the gym in practice, right? Like if, if you hate, not the person, but you hate playing with guys on your team, you have to get up and you have to go to practice in a snowy, dark place. You're going to be like, man, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to practice. But if you have to wake up and you're like, you got three, four guys on the team that everyone loves playing with. They're like, when they draft their team, I want this guy, I want this guy, right? Then the chemistry is going to help create itself because basketball is going to be more fun. And I think it's a super underrated part of our job, right, is, is it's all a game. You know, at the end of the day, basketball is a game. We're not really doing anything super important. We're not really changing the world, although credit to the – to the NBA players and now the EuroLeague players and the platform that they have, they're attempting to change the world, right? Like in terms of like, we're not curing cancer over here. So it's a game. It should be fun. And people should enjoy coming to practice, should enjoy coming to work, should enjoy playing the game. Now, there's a difference between fun, right, and being focused and having fun and screwing around and and just joking around. You know, but we want guys that are going to make practice fun because that in itself is going to pick the energy up of the practice and create that chemistry. You know, when, when you love uh, – all of us have had that teammate or that player that we coach, it's everyone loves playing with them. You know, if you could find a way to get three or four of those guys on your team, that means each team in practice is going to have at least two guys on it uh, and they're five on five that they love playing with, you know, and that means in the critical game, you're going to have at least two players on the floor that everyone loves playing with. Yeah, that's great, coach. Um, and I think, uh, nice to hear you talking about that because I think that touches every level of basketball, obviously. Um, one guys that are fun to play with or fun to be around and makes everything much easier for sure. Um, question about your sort of path to where you're at you've done such a great job of of moving into different positions and networking and now you're a g league head coach and um, got a lot of coaching in front of you obviously Um, but what do you think you've done well in your career that's allowed you to kind of take these steps up um, into some of the best leagues in Europe and now being a, a G League head coach. What is it particularly that you think that you do that other coaches should bring, want to get to that same path? Well, I, you know, first off, we can speak to the to the honest portion of it. Like some of what I've done is has been skill. Some of it is people giving you a chance, you know, at at the end of the day, and this is what helped me along the way, right? Like the, I'm one of 28 G league head coaches. The mentality that I was the most qualified person for the job is crazy. There was a lot of coaches that have, that are actually better coaches 
that have been working as hard or harder for longer that have sacrificed as much as I have or more than get the job. And, you know, so some of it, right, is right place, right time. You fit the right fill that they're looking for. And some of it is somebody just seeing something in you and giving you a chance. For me, David Griffin, Alvin Gentry, Trajan Langdon, Mark Chasnoff, they gave me a chance. They saw something in me. I wasn't the most qualified people. There's a bunch of coaches that deserve the job more than me. So there's something to that. And Hapol Jerusalem, Guy Harrell, the GM, saw something in me and he gave me an opportunity, right? So at the end of the day, all of us need a break. You know, and I was just looking this up uh, because it, it's something we all go through, right? Like we all want the big break in our career. We all want to get there and get there now. Everyone wants to, to be at the pinnacle of their profession right now. No one wants to wait. We don't want to wait 10 years, 20 years. And so, you know, one of the things that's, that's got to be inspiring, uh, he's inspiring to me. Few people are one, right? Like you got Chris Finch, Nick Nurse, Chris Fleming. It, you could throw Kenny Atkinson in there. Obviously, Mike D'Antoni and Quinn Center, but, but guys with some form of European coaching experience that are in the NBA. Right. But Nick Nurse got a G League head coaching job at 43. You know, I mean, he no, sorry, he got a G League head coaching job at 40. He made the NBA as an assistant at 46. So, you know, like he got it at 40. I got it at 35. You know, it's like quality of coach. Uh, not comparable. Nick Nurse is a thousand times better than me. He just got his break five years later than when I got mine. You know, so I think there's something to when you get your break. You can't really control when you get your break, right? But in order to have a chance to get your break, you've got to be an extremely hard worker. You have to be a good person. People have to genuinely like you. You have to be good at your job and prepared at your job. You know, when I got my job, I was very fortunate that the right people recommended me to David Griffin, a uh, guy by the name of David Thorpe, uh, who's an NBA analyst and has worked with 60 different NBA guys. He's the best player development guy I've ever seen. Uh, to Amari Stoudemire, uh, always helps when, when Amari Stoudemire <laughs> recommends you. Yeah, you know, but, th but there's a luck portion, right, that he was in Hapol, Jerusalem for two years. And the team, his first year there, sent me to Miami to work him out for two weeks. So I got to build a great relationship with him, you know, for two weeks. And, and I got super lucky that I was recommended to David Griffin. Then David Griffin was looking for an American international coach to be the head coach of the G League team. And he asked their international scout, and he recommended me along with three other names. Then Trajan Langdon came in. Trajan Langdon somehow had my name. I don't know how. Somebody recommended me to him, etc. Then David Griffin called four people to ask about me. And he told me everyone said great things, right? So like, that's a big part of it is you don't know who knows who. At the end of the day, for every job that you're more or less hired, it comes down to traditionally one of two things. Somebody you know or somebody you know recommended you to somebody they know. So four people said positive things about me to David Griffin, who didn't know me. Uh, four random people outside of Amari and, and Coach Thorpe. And somehow somebody recommended me to Trajan Langdon. 
But whoever those people were, I didn't think I was a jackass. You know, if they would have thought like, okay, yeah, he's a good coach. He works for the hour, but man, that guy's arrogant jackass. I would have never, you know, they would have told that I probably wouldn't have the job, right? So treating people well and being a good person is a big part of it. Now it gets to the skill of it. And coaching, your network is your net worth. And as I said, people, for you to get a job, it comes down to knowing someone, right? People hire who they know or somebody recommended by somebody they know. So now how do you build your network? The first time I went to NBA Summer League, you know, I, like for the majority of my career, I've taken jobs based off opportunity, not money. So for the majority of my career, I've made nothing, you know, less than eight, $900 a month uh, while being married. So, uh, but I always chased opportunity over money. I was never going to miss out on a great opportunity because I was going to say, ah, I couldn't afford it. You know, I've had to sell my car, my possessions, whatever, cut my expenses to be able to make a job work. I went to second division Germany for $800 a month plus housing, no car. Uh, I had one meal a day. You know, I took a job in the G League as an assistant coach with the Erie Bayhawks for a total of $1,200 a month for six months with no housing. I had to move away from my wife. And also I had to do intern work, drive the van, do the laundry, clean, poop off toilets. Uh, that only happened like three, four times. But <laughs> I still had to do it. You know, but on my resume, said assistant coach of the NBA G League. It doesn't say your salary on your resume, right? It says your experience. And too many times, you know, when I talk with coaches, when a good opportunity arises, the mentality is, I can't afford that. That doesn't, like, I don't know how to help you then because, you know, I grew up uh, not with money and I still have student loans and most of the jobs I've taken have been for no money, right? But I've been able to build great experience in my resume because I was never going to be priced out of a job. You're never going to be like, ah, you know, it didn't matter. Like, I, I was going to take it for anything. And that's a big part of it. So I went to NBA Summer League for the very first time putting the flight, hotel, food on credit card that I couldn't really afford. And I got there and nobody would talk to me. You know, like I, I didn't know anyone. Nobody would talk to me. I was trying to become a, you know, pro coach. And I saw a bunch of people getting in taxi cabs. So I went back home and the next year, you know, I doubled down and that's a big part of it. People be like, well, I can't afford to do this. Can't afford to I slept on hotel rooms, whatever. I've figured out a way and I invested in my career. I didn't have any money, but I invested. I went back and I told my wife, I was like, look, I'm going back and now I'm running a car. You know, it's like you're spending more money. Yeah, I'm going to spend more. So I rented a car. I didn't watch any games. I waited in the hallways. I built on some of the people that actually talked to me from the year before. And everyone wants to save 20 bucks on a taxi cab. So I just drove people around. You know, that was before they had Uber and stuff. I just, oh, they were leaving. Oh, where are you going? Oh, yeah, I'm headed in that direction. Let me give you a ride. And then I got 15 minutes in a closed car with them. And I got to drive around some NBA head coaches, EuroLeague head coaches, European coaches, NBA assistants, G League head coaches, et cetera. And I still do that now. Last year at Summer League, when I was a G League head coach, rented a car, drove people around. 
you know, I, I try to find as many ways as possible when you're trying to network people inherently, uh, they don't really give you any time, right? Like that, like it, for whatever reason, people aren't overly willing to help other people in my experience, right? So you have to figure out how to create value. So I started, you know, when I was in Germany, I, I started watching, I watched a pick and roll clinic by Andrea Trinchetti. And I was like, man, this is amazing. Let me watch his team play. Cause sometimes, you know, you watch a clinic, you're like, that was amazing. And then you watch their team play. They do nothing that they talked about in the clinic. So I was like, I, it was an unbelievable clinic on pick and roll. So I was like, let me watch his team play in Bomber. I was like, holy crap, man. You know, this guy's unbelievable. So I just started cutting it up and I just started sending it out. Like by emails, I had like emails, random 50 emails. And then I, I created a LinkedIn account. I was in China two years prior. And when I was there, like I, I went through and just started adding as many people as I could on my LinkedIn account. Well, then I found out when you do that, like you have their email address. So I built an email database. Then I went on Eurobasket slash had my wife go on Eurobasket and just look up every coach that you can find in every country on Eurobasket, try to add them on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, say, Hey, I put out these, uh, European plays, you know, send me your email address if you want them. And now my database is like 4,500 emails. And, you know, I, I think you guys received the plays. Don't you? Did I send them to you? Oh, yeah. 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 So, right. So now I'm creating value in the networking, right? Like you're going to get those plays and most people want to watch European basketball. So they're going to watch it. They're going to recognize the hard work that went into it, the hard work that went in preparing it, sent it out, the organization of it. And they're going to sit there and be like, okay, this guy works hard. Now I've, now I've had people that have never responded to an email, you know, and I'll be at summer league. And now fortunately my network has expanded because I do as many things as possible. I try to go to, any of these events at any given year that I can time-wise, the Final Four, Portsmouth, the EuroLeague Final Four, uh, the, the NBA Combine in Chicago, the what used to be the Treviso Camp in Italy, the different summer leagues, anything that I can go to where people will be at that I can meet them and grow and then figure out right how to bring value to the relationship. And so sending out those plays brought value. And so then I'd see people at Summer League and be driving people around and be like, Ryan, oh, you're the guy that sends out the plays. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that. Awesome. Great. You know, so like then I'm able to build relationships and then I try to respond to every person that I can on every message and LinkedIn and, you know, consistently just try to help as many people as possible and be a good person. And you know, like always, sometimes you miss an email, sometimes you forget to respond, but that's, that's a genuine course of figuring out how do you add value to a relationship that you're trying to grow and then not ask for anything. Like the biggest thing when people begin to network and before that contact grows into a real relationship, they ask for stuff, right? Like you, if you don't really know somebody and they're asking you for something, you know, what's the first thing that pops in your head? Like, I just met you. I don't know you. You know, so I was conscious to never ask people for stuff, right, and try to cultivate that relationship 
to where it became an authentic relationship to ever ask for anything before I needed it. Coach, how about now as your network has grown, as you've become a head coach in the G League and more people know who you are and are asking for more of your time, like, you know, us of slapping glass here <laughs> on, a, on a Sunday weekend. How about, um, I mean, because you've, this has been a f- fantastic interview and, and we are so thankful for your time. But how about now, um, as you continue to, to grow, have you had to say no to more things or have you had more people coming at you where you've had to have a little bit more of a wall up than you did when you were starting out? No, because I'm really conscious, like, you know, when I first tried to coach in, in internationally, so I, I was coaching junior college, I, I'd taken a job there for 600 bucks a month, moved away from my wife, she stayed in Florida, I was in Alabama, and she came up for like spring break or something, she's like, yeah, why don't you look into coaching overseas, I'd like to live abroad, so I went on the Eurobasket, looked up every American coach I was coaching overseas, tried to find them on Facebook, sent them a message. Uh, I think two guys responded out of like the 200 messages I sent. And so I remember the feeling of people not willing to share their time. Now, like in our case, right, it took a month to, to, to work it out for, for whatever reason. And I actually, I really apologize because it's, it's something that has bothered me for the last month that, uh, that it's taken so long to do it. Uh, Coach, because I, I good. really don't want to do that. <laughs> we're good. Uh, but no, I've, I, I try to never say no. I try to anyone that emails me or sends me a message that wants to ask for advice. I send them my number, tell them to call me and, you know, send me a message. If I don't answer, if I don't have it to respond, send me another message. Cause if I didn't respond, it was an accident. It wasn't on purpose. Uh, but no, I just, I try to schedule it like this. I scheduled during my kid's nap. So now I just, I have to schedule it at different times. Like a lot of the stuff that I do is between like one and five when my kids sleep or after nine when my kids sleep. But I, I try to do as much as I can because everyone needs help, right? Like, like that's the thing. Like I still need help in my career. Like I, my contact has grown. My relationships have grown. My dream is to be an NBA assistant coach. Uh, I've got a few dreams left. I want to be an NBA assistant coach. I want to be a EuroLeague assistant coach. I'd like to be a national team assistant coach. And of course, like to be a head coach would be amazing. Realistically, not going to happen. Like those are the dreams, right? So in order for those to happen, like somebody still has to help me. Right. And everyone needs help in their career, but most people forget that they needed help once their career progresses. And so we're we're all in this rat race of trying to find somebody that can help me and then not helping the person that I can help. And so I, I really remember what that feeling was like and it sucked. And the people that, that were willing to give their time to you, you remember, you know, like I had people that were willing to give their time for me. They never hired me, never offered me a job, but if they ever asked me for anything, which they have, like I jump on it right away. Cause I'm so appreciative that they even took the time to respond to me, you know? And, and I think I, I try to be really conscious of that to where like, I'm very fortunate. My career has progressed the last five, seven years. Right. But like the, there's somebody that's where I was five to seven years ago that needs some help, needs some advice. It's just looking to try to figure it out. 
And you know what, man? Like, we're all trying to make it. And I think we see it, you know, particularly in our country every day. Like, we're not tolerant of other people. We won't listen to other people. We won't try to help other people, you know. And I think that's a big part of it, right? Like, you know, there's a a great Vince Vaughn quote from the movie Wedding Crashers. And, uh, you know, he's going over his holy shirts and names staying at the dinner table with some other is there having, you know, he tell people helping people, you know, it's re- it's really not Powerful that hard. Stuff. Like yeah. it, it's, it's a great quote of people helping people. Like everyone needs help at some point in their career. And if you can help people and maybe the help is just a, simple responded email. Maybe it's doing a podcast. Maybe it's, you know, going over one of the clinics you did with the high school coach in Iowa. Like it's not that hard. You, you can really set your time aside and help people. And like I said, you may have to schedule it a month later. Like it's, you know, definitely I'm much busier now than I was four years ago in terms of more people reaching out to me. Right. But uh, I mean that. I think that's part of the responsibility is you know help as many people as you can. That's great. Yeah. Did you um, think Vince Vaughn was going to come up in this podcast? Well, I was going to say <laughs> I think uh, I've scoured, coach, a lot of uh, your interviews, and uh, I've been a big fan of yours. And I think that's the first wedding crasher quote we've gotten from Coach Panone on a on a podcast. Well, most people don't understand yeah. it. Uh, I mean, like, you know, David Thorpe and I in the player development work, we just walk around yeah. doing movie quotes all day. I, I'm a massive movie quote guy. You're on the right um, podcast. Yeah, you're, you're on the right company. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a massive movie quote guy. And, you know, I mean, it's like it, it, it seems simple. Like it's a joke when he says it, but it's like people helping people. Like how much different would our country – and our world be if people just right. help people. Simple. You know, David Thorpe has a great quote. Uh, you know, like, everyone can be decent. Not everyone's going to be a great human being, but everyone can be a decent person in life. You know, it's not hard. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Slapping glass.